Hello everyone, welcome to Tennis with an Accent. This is Saki once again hosting the show and today I have the pleasure of uh, bringing back Skip Schwartzman who's been on the podcast before a few times. He also was in Madrid for the Davis Cup. Those of you who follow the website and the podcast, Skip's been a familiar presence. On that note, uh, welcome Skip. Thanks for doing this uh, on a weeknight. I know you've been busy with work, but it's a pleasure speaking with you again. Thank you, Saka. It's my pleasure. I appreciate being asked. Yeah, and Australian Open is the uh, first slam of the decade is in the books. And uh, I thought uh, no one better than you to come and give your opinions on how the fortnight unfolded. And mainly the second week because we did a midweek uh, podcast with Andrew and uh, Matt. So you can give the finishing touch on the first major of this decade. So on that note, Sophia Cannon uh, is the proud winner. Uh, of the women's edition. Uh, I was very honored to speaking, uh, actually interviewing her when in my brief stay, stay in Toronto and uh, she was pretty impressive, the kind of wins she stacked up. And uh, But I, 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 I'm honestly, would, uh, if someone told me that she's going to win the next major after US Open, I would have been surprised. I could see the momentum she was building, winning a lot of matches. I don't know how much uh, of Sophia did you catch this week. So what are your immediate recollections of what happened at uh, Melbourne Park and uh, and Sofia as the first champion of the year? Well, I would say a, a couple things. First of all, <clears throat> that's that's really very nice of you to say no one better than me to talk about the second week. I think that there are quite a few people who um, could fit that bill better, but that's sweet of you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Secondly, I don't think you should feel bad about not expecting to see Kenan um, take the, the first a big four tournament of the year out of the clear blue. Um, I think you're in very good company there and a very, of a lar- very large group of us. Um, I, I don't think there's anybody that really was ready to predict that. And my guess is that even her father would have been a little hard pressed to say it uh, in any kind of large company. Um, I, I think it's great. I think it's great for uh, tennis to see a new face. I think it's great for American tennis. I'm excited about that part of it. Um, yes, I would be surprised about it. Uh, I had not seen much of her before this tournament. I saw the beginning of her match against Barty. I did not see the entire match. Um, I did follow all the matches very closely, uh, in print and, and, and post match, but not so many of them live. Um, I think about Kenan she impresses me as one of the few players on the WTA tour who loves the competition. Uh, clearly, all of the players at the top of the WTA rankings are are competitors. They like the competition or else they wouldn't be where they are. That, that goes without saying, and I don't mean to ignore that aspect of it. But I'm not sure that all of them really have that you know, that quote from Billie Jean where somewhere she said that, you know, she would find herself at add in or some critical juncture and, and she would just think to herself, geez, I love this. Um, I'm not sure they all love it. And I think she does. I think she's like, you know, Connors loved it. Connors just fed off that excitement of the precipice that one dances upon when a match gets close. And there's a sense of needing to dominate. Um, that, that that the act of winning is an act of domination, even if it's done amongst, you know, good friends. 
so I think that in that respect, it's probably not a surprise if one knew her well enough. I just think that to a great degree, many of us didn't know her well enough. So that's the first thing. And that all, um, that, that's all to her credit and it all emanates from her. I do think that it's worth asking the question. If the Australian tennis, if Tennis Australia had not chosen Plexpave for all of their summer circuit tournaments, the ATP Cup, all the tournaments used Plexipave, which was a good move that they homogenized the service, I think, given that it's really all created as a buildup to the Australian. But if they had not chosen Plexipave, which by all accounts was a slower surface, would Cannon have come through and been the winner? It's obviously unknowable. It's certainly not as if she's the first player more or less like her to win because I, you know, I think you, you have to think about Kerber. Um, Kerber probably being left-handed, it's probably worth, I don't know, a quarter of a point, half a point, three quarters of a point a game, I would say. Uh, she's not the, the most left-handed of left-handed players, but she is a not dissimilar player. Tough at the baseline uh, and found the right amount of aggression to add um, in order to get past players who might otherwise hit her off the court. Um, so if the courts were not slowed down to the extent that they were, it was some noticeable by most players' comments. Would Kennan have been the player who came through? I, I think that's, it, it, it's unknowable, but I have to say that's a big question mark. So where does she go? For, so that's, I, I'll leave that there. I, I have no firm answer there. I don't, I don't know if there is a firm answer. Where do I think she goes from here? I think you just have to wait and see. I mean, I, I, I don't think she's going to fade away. Um, certainly the, the resolve that she showed and that she's renowned for from those who know her better would suggest that she's not going to. But as we used to say when we played pool in my grandfather's basement, you know, there's a lot of green between here and there. And we've seen what happens when somebody wins a big four title for the first time, <coughs> excuse me, multiple times. Um, players lose their way. Sometimes they lose their way irretrievably, and sometimes they lose their way for a little while and come back. Um, there's pressure on them. There are endorsements. There's uh, being at the top. I was taught um, by uh, Frank Brennan Sr., who was Billie Jean's early coach, that you know, when you're climbing your way up the ladder, all you're doing is focusing on the heels of the person who's above you and trying to grab their heel and climb over them to the next rung on the ladder. But it's a very different mentality to be at the top of the ladder when the only thing that there is for you to do is shake everyone off your heels. And Kennan, of course, is far from being at the top of the ladder in such a way that she's got to shake everyone off. But nonetheless, you end up with a target on your back. I'm not the first person to say that. And that it changes very much. Osaka commented about how she doesn't really have a champion's mentality and it was a rather tepid defense of her title this year. And so I think that's another insight in the same thing. I, I hope Kennan does well for a whole variety of reasons. I think, you know, that her mentality is great. American at the top is great. Style of play is great. She's got confidence. I think that's great. Uh, uh, I, I think it's all good. So you said, uh, just building upon the first response, that you haven't seen much of her coming into this, and now uh, you gave her, you know, very due praise. Uh, 
she joins a list of uh, uh, fairly recent uh, first-time WTA major winners in uh, uh, Ostapenko, Osaka, and if you even want to include Barty and Andrescu. So where does she fall in that group? I know it's too early to say, but you know these conversations have its own theme, and we can look back in June at this. But right now, where does in the even you know you may have recency bias, or I may have recency bias, but where do we put her? in the stack of the first-time winners and potential-wise, what's the trajectory here? Um, I, I would put her probably in the middle of the pack. Would ex expect her results to be... Um, I don't think she has the finishing power of... She doesn't have the finishing power of, of Osaka or Andrescu. Um, I think she... Uh, has far more consistency than Ostapenko. I mean, I think anybody who watched Ostapenko win the French, you had to walk away and say, you know, geez, Louise, if if she can keep playing like that day in, day out, she'll be the first player in history to be that way. Um, I think she caught lightning in a bottle. I think the rest of her career, it's a little easy for me to say that. Hindsight's twenty twenty. The rest of her career seems to be that way. But she, you said before, you know, being a one-dimensional player, she certainly seems to be the kind of player who, you know, she flips. She, it's it's on off. There is no there is no rheostat on her light switch. It's either all on or all off. And if she's all on, then she's untouchable. But as anybody who plays the game knows, that's you know that that that's maybe the holy grail of tennis is to be all on all the time. Um, and like the Holy Grail, it's really yet to be found. So I would put her at the back end of the pack. Um, I don't see Kennan's having the all-court game of Barty, who still has, you know, she has a, a, a more deadly serve and a more deadly forehand day in, day out, you know, her loss notwithstanding. Um, but, you know, there are no points awarded for beauty, so if you have a beautiful, more beautiful shot, um, you don't get points if it's more beautiful but doesn't go in enough. So that's not to take anything away from Barty, but my point is more about Kennan, is that if I think her game is maybe a little bit more limited, maybe it's not quite as technically beautiful or aesthetically beautiful, but she gets the ball back because this talent that she has is her mentality, um, I, I, I would it remains to be seen how she deals with it going forwards if she continues to be able to apply that strength of hers. But it's on the assumption that she does, I certainly would see her at the very least in the middle of that pack and, and, and otherwise. I just think surface is going to make a difference for her. She can faster. definitely play on clay. I mean, she's had the results in a very young career. So I think that can... Correct. That can be Correct. another hunting ground, yeah. Correct. And, of course, the 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 arc of the... Court speed in the game on men's and women towards both has been towards slower courts, so that that's to her benefit as well. But uh, I certainly don't see her at the top. I don't. I, I, she doesn't impress me at this point. If someone's going to do that, um, predictions are dangerous things. But uh, but I would certainly see her in the top. You know, in the middle to the top third of that pack. Yeah, hold your thought on the court speed. We'll bring this back uh, to another question later in the show, but. Let's continue with the women's uh, side of the draw. And uh, we have to talk about the finalist, Garbina Muguruza, who uh, had a very inconsistent, you know, uh, last season, uh, if that's one way to summarize it. And she just came from nowhere and 
but she's very capable of playing this kind of lights out tennis and she also had a new coach in the box with Conchita Martinez so talk talk about her her tournament and uh, what what did you catch of it and uh, uh, what are what are your takeaway uh, talking points for Garbini's kickstart to this uh, 2020 campaign it was interesting i heard um i heard it said about her press conference this was actually at via the, the tennis podcast that she replied to some comment about her consistency, something to the effect that, look, I'm never going to be a consistent player, and I'm not going to, ha- and as a result, I'm not going to have super consistent results week in week out. I have to peak for certain things, and I think that there's a legitimacy to that point of view. <coughs> Excuse me. I think it's an odd point of view coming from someone who's the charge of Conchita Martinez. Um, it's an it's a legitimate point of view, but only up to a point. Um, I would be disappointed if a player, any player, came off a of court and said, "Look, I'm just not a consistent player, and today was not my day, and I lost." That is is too facile uh, a, a a reason for losing a match that one might otherwise be expected to win. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I think that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, as I implied earlier, I think that her coming forwards more often is a great addition to her game. It's a way for her to exploit both the, her power off the ground <coughs> and and her size, her reach. Um, it's you know basically easier to cover the ball left to right if you're taller than if you're shorter. So uh, this is one way for her to exploit that. The geometry of the court is still the same. But the geometry of the court, as defined by the player's size, uh, changes can change pretty dramatically. Um, I also think that there's an extrapolation about Muguruza, especially in the final, that is worth considering, and that is this. It's two all in the third set. Kennan goes down, love 40, on her serve. She now, it's now well known, she said in this press conference, she said to herself, okay, I, now I have to hit the five best shots I've hit in my life. And she doesn't hit winners off the second ball. I mean, she still constructed points, but she understood that she had to make a stand here and she had to lift her game and it was very conscious and she, and she did it. And by all accounts, Muguruza was completely upended by that. Now, Really, Muguruza, as I see it, and difficult though it might have been, it's always easier to say what I'm going to say than it is to do it. Her response to that should be expletive. I had three game, I had three break points at two all in the third set. What a dummy I am for not doing it. However, I'm still on serve, and I'm the better server. So let's get on with it. And instead. It appears that that really pulled the rug out from underneath her feet. So what is the greater extrapolation that I'm talking about? On-court coaching. A coach on the changeover at 3-2 after Kennan held would sit down next to Muguruza, assuming that they come out on the court or it, with the WTA's new thing from the, from the box, but not in a big four tournament, not in a Grand Slam tournaments, would be saying, chill, you're the bigger player. Physically, big game is bigger. You're on. You're only on serve. That's all it is. Get to the job at hand. And we would see in that situation 
how Kennan's skill, or one might say talent, at mental fortitude, at figuring out what was going on on the court while it was going on for herself, at being able to raise her game with self-awareness. This is when I need to do this. I need to do it now. The situation calls for this. Or maybe in some situations, not this one. My opponent is at their weakest. If I can put the knife in now, they will fold. That talent of Kennan, the same thing that I said is going to keep her in the middle or to the top third of the pack, is removed if there's on-court coaching. If someone gets to, t- if, if Conchita Martinez is there and on the changeover, she tells Muguruza, look, Garbina, it's only, you're on serve. Babe, hold serve, and it's three-all. And you're right back where you started. Then I think the game is losing one of its most fascinating components. And one of the things that differentiates it from all the team sports that occupy the top of the fold news in the newspapers, to use an old metaphor, um, and the game's going to be poorer for it. It doesn't mean that people are paying attention to what I'm saying. I I feel a little old and in the way when I say that. But I think that on-court coaching, in this case, um, would have diminished the likelihood of Kennan winning, quite honestly, and would devalue Kennan's additional talent or skill that she has in doing that. So my comment about Muguruza is I'd love to see her back in the game. Clearly her history doesn't suggest that she's going to, but let's hope she does. I certainly don't want to see her not do well. Her game would be a great addition to the regular uh, roster of players that are in the quarters and semis and finals and on the tour. I think that I, and I, and I will also say that I think that, um, one of the things about the slower courts is that it it does not necessarily it, it can be an advantage or a disadvantage for somebody who's not really a great mover. She's not a great mover, and all the more reason for her to be able to come forwards, I think, and and to avoid being able to get jerked around, uh, you know, left to right uh, across the baseline. Um, so there's some aspect there of of her being her coming forwards being able to give her an option to only go coast to coast for the length of every point and you know the only way to finish it would be from the baseline with something big i i, I think going for go, coming forwards i think is getting more attention deservedly so and it's been too long since it's gotten since it, it's been a long time since that tension has been been wanting hmm, those are some very interesting observations regarding the on court coaching how it can uh, substitute or take away you know what tennis uh, one-on-one aspect is without any coaching the problem solving which has made certain players so great like the likes of Leighton Hewitt, Mats Villander and now you know the big three they continue to uh, problem solve when they're not playing well that's those are the matches that you know stay in our memories the most when the plan well, B or plan C is in play. Exactly, and I I think the, the 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 example of that on the men's side in the final was the two was the two points where Djokovic identified where he served and volleyed that it was unexpected. Um, you know, if he had on court coaching there, not that there's much on court coaching on the ATP side, but if there was on court coaching there, do you think a coach is going to tell him now's the time to serve and volley? I, I don't think so. In fact, I'd be I'd be willing to bet some serious money on the, that no coach is going to tell him, all right, Nole, now's the time for you to serve in volley. Uh, but coach, I haven't done it for a set and a half. I know, but now's the time for you to go and try and do it. 
I mean, I, that's not that's not what a coach is going to say. <clears throat> and yet it's his tennis savvy that said to him, this is the right time for me to 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 try this. And then I'm confident enough in my ability to pull it off that I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it with confidence, not do it. I'm not doing it out of fear. It's not the same as as when before his dominant period, you know, he would he was rather infamous for hitting drop shots as a bailout shot. It was That was more like a, a cheat. It was a way of getting out of the pressure situation. He didn't serve in volley as a way of getting out of a pressure situation. He served in volley because he had enough confidence as being able to do it that he was ready to throw the confidence question at team. Are you confident enough with me coming in that you can do something that I will not have a repost to? And he came up with the goods. I don't think a coach would tell him to do that. And so, again, I think I'm making my own case for no on-court coaching. Yeah, I think most of us uh, are on the same page. Uh, uh, Maybe we are, you know, uh, watching tennis from different generations with a different viewpoint. But, yeah, uh, some innovations are good, but uh, some things, like you said, that makes the sport more unique and has its own character, you know, that just defines... Uh, the ultimate winner, not even of a tournament, even of a match, because every week, every match is a knockout competition except the year-end championships, which are round-robin. So let's switch gears, uh, since you already brought Novak Djokovic and Dominic Team. Uh, so again, Djokovic is down two sets to one. That was one stat that he, again, was it was against him. And, of course, you know, he's uh, someone who is breaking a lot of stats and a lot of records. So... Uh, let, let's go back to that point when team had won the third set. Me and Murta Tunga were texting each other and there was a group thread. I'm sure everyone was doing it with some of the, you know, folks that you discussed this game. So what was your recollection, Skip, that uh, you think Dominic team has it or he still has to win the last point? Or were you one of those when you believe, okay, Djokovic is going to go in absolute lockdown mode or he's going to, you know, just uh, make it about the tennis he's going to, just uh, make team beat him in in the most important of moments. I I think that um, the phrase lockdown mode, in my memory, came about because of Djokovic. I cannot remember it's being used prior to him being on the tour. I could be wrong. But I think that that's pretty much the case. And I would say that if you are somebody whose game has been the motivator, the motivator for a phrase lockdown mode in a defensive game, in a defensive oriented game, as I said, tennis is fundamentally, then the odds are that um, somebody has to be really good, extraordinarily good on any given day to stop you if you get into lockdown mode successfully. Um, and clearly Djokovic is able to do that. I mean, his record shows it as, as to any number of matches he's won. This is the first one he's won when he's been come back from being down two sets to, to one, but he does have that ability and it is, um, in many ways, greater than almost anybody else. I don't know in, in some ways if it's greater than Nadal, except that I would say that Djokovic probably hits a higher percentage of balls deeper than Nadal. Nadal's ball is a different ball. 
I don't mean to suggest that nobody else has a lockdown mode, but his is particularly difficult because it does not, it, it, it there's, there's so it's, it's like punching your way out of a, a big paper bag. There seems to be nowhere to go where you get an opening. Whereas with Nadal, it's maybe a little bit easier to find an opening. It's harder to, it's harder to exploit it, but it's there to be found perhaps if in, in, in the, in his, you know, hard to his forehand, go to his backhand routine that, that, is so talked about, although clearly the backhand's become a weapon in its own right. Um, does the team have it? Sure, he has it. Uh, why did he not win? Jeez, I don't know. I don't know if he knows. Um, I think it's possible. I think it's not impossible to say or, or, to, or to put out there as an idea that team serve is not quite big enough to have um, lifted him through the fourth set. That's a possibility. Um, that a, a few more that, that that a few more points that came to him with with aces, you know that 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 might come to another player uh, would be helpful. Is that the is that the surface again? Maybe. Is it easier for Djokovic to go to lockdown mode on a slower hard court than it is on a faster hard court? Yeah, I think so. Do I think that's the difference in the match? No, I can't really say. It's not as if team held a bunch of match points and didn't, and and, and Djokovic held him off, so we didn't get to that point. Um, I just think that we're looking at one of the at, at one of the greatest players of all time, and in the end, or when they're pushed up against it, the great players are time and again, more often than not, not going to give you anything. You have to t- you have to be able to take it from them. You might beat them but they're not going to lose and you got to come up with you, you don't have to come up with something great at the right time but you have to come up with a, a you you have to come up with a consistent level a high consistent level all the time to beat them you can't have weak points you can't have you know the the depth of your shots can't go you can't have one ball in every five that's landing six feet from the baseline. They have to all be two feet from the baseline as an image. Um, because when things get tight, they're not going to drop balls six feet from the baseline. And those differences are small, but the, at that level, that's what makes the difference. You know, I'd, it, it would be interesting to know what Dominic team and his support group, what his team feel was the difference in that match. We'll, ne- we'll never get them to say, not until everybody's retired and having drinks around the bar, maybe then, if then. But it would be interesting to hear what they said they thought the difference was. Because I have to believe that they, you don't get to that level and think that, and believe that the difference was entirely Djokovic. You know, I, I don't think you get to be top five in the world and believe that every match is, is dependent on how your, your opponent plays. That's just not how you get to be number, you know, in the top five of the world, just as, or the top 10 for that matter, or the top 20. So in other words, are you saying both things can be true at the same time, that teams level drop, but it had a lot to do with Djokovic and vice versa, or it was just Djokovic mixing it up? And I, I, I know you were the analyst here, so I'll also add that in my view, even though I use the word lockdown mode, Djokovic also played some of the most, uh, you know, he mixed it up with some good offense as well. It's not like all, you know. No, no, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't mean I don't look. It, it, Djokovic. There's, there's nobody. There's certainly nobody on the men's side today who gets by by simply getting the ball back. I mean, that's that's reductive to the point of of ridiculousness. You know, a few years ago, you might have said that Sarah Arani on the women's side was was that kind of player, but there's nobody on the men's side that even comes close to that. So I'm not trying to suggest that that's all that it is. It clearly is not. But locked, I think lockdown mode in this case basically means I'm not going to give you anything, and if you give me something, I am going to take it and run with it. That's what I would say. That's a reasonable definition of lockdown mode, with the emphasis on I'm not going to. I'm going to start out by giving you nothing. I'm not going to give you court position. I'm not going to. You're not going to be able to hit the ball. You know, two. You're not going to be able to get me out of position. You know, the look, I mean, I've never seen anybody make gets across the baseline like Djokovic. Never. And I've been watching for 50 years, 55 years. I've never seen anybody do that. The the quality of the of the ball that he gets back from the positions that he has to be in when he hits them are simply mind blowing. They're otherworldly. That's part of lockdown mode. It's not just that they get back. They're not moon balls. Is the quality of the ball that gets back, but he doesn't necessarily hit a winner either, and that's not a knock. Don't misunderstand me. I, it, but he doesn't give you anything, and part of the pressure that he creates in that a great part, a large part of the pressure is you have to hit the ball even better, and all of a sudden your ball that otherwise might have been two feet in is now two inches out, because you have to go for the lines. So could team have been better in that situation that's kind of why i'm saying it has comes down to a serve um where it's not an issue of your being better in the course of a point construction but if you can walk up and knock off a 50 a 40 15 game like sampras different circumstances but i'm using that as an as an idea or <clears throat> or zverev uh, you know as a more modern player let's say or maybe Vavrinka or or Federer when he's when he's serving well he's not had a day like that against these guys well I guess maybe London against Djokovic, um, but you know where you're hitting your spots your location's good and your your MPH are good, um, and to to have a tough game with Djokovic and then come in and throw down a forty fifteen game that's over one two three and before you know it. Djokovic in this in our example is now having to serve again. He's you know your service game is quick. Your team you get your service game out of the way one two three, and um, and decisively and now he's back to serving again. Well that also wears at somebody. So they're trying to be in lockdown mode, but they're finding geez Louise I'm back to serving again. I, I just I thought I just got done serving. It, it's it's a mental pressure, without having that kind of service game to help throw the mental pressure back on the Djokovic quickly. Um, that puts team a little bit more on his back foot. Look, I would say, look at it this way. Do any of us believe that Dominic team's strategy entering this match was I'm going to outlast Novak in long points. I, I can't imagine that that was his strategy. So the overall strategy has to be something like I'm going to craft points in such a way that I'm able to take enough of them to create pressure that I'll get the opportunity to take more of them as things wear on. And not that he's going to hit more winners, but that's going to be the overall thing that he's going to come out. It's going to be more of a Stan Wawrinka style of baseline play, let's say, than it's going to be, I don't know, um, Zverev or uh, who else? Uh, Medvedev? That we think? 
Or Medvedev, yes. Correct. Medvedev, maybe with a little bit more heft, but yes. And, you know, it didn't work. It didn't work because Novak Djokovic is Novak Djokovic. Mm. I mean, the, the, the other way of looking at it, I think, is if Dominic Team had won, would we have said that Dominic Team is as good a player as Novak Djokovic? And you would say, well, on the day, he was the better player. But to, but to, to make some grand statement, like, it, it, you need to see more than that. So losing in that situation, it kind of becomes, yeah, that's right, because Dominic Team is not quantifiably, definitively, forevermore a better player than Novak Djokovic. Novak Djokovic is still Novak Djokovic. And, you know, it, it's you, it, you just need to be able to grab it. I mean, here's another thing. You know, have we seen Djokovic play really well and lose to Med, to a Medvedev-style player? I don't think so. I mean, when we've seen him lose, it's been it, – what, he's he's lost six times out of 64 matches, I think I just read, in the past three years or past two years. You know, he, he's if he's losing, if he's lost, he's had a retirement at the U.S. Open – uh, he won his matches in Madrid. I think he won all his matches at the ATP Cup. Um, he lost the doubles, of course, in Madrid against Russia. Um, uh, he, he he just the guy's top of the game, and there's there's a reason for it. Yeah, he won the title in Versailles. He's yeah, he's been on quite a run. <laughs> so let's stick with Djokovic for a few more. Uh, I think. Uh, points of discussion. Where does this rank uh, in terms of greatness, him winning Australia? We are, we've, ta- we've started taking all these guys for granted and Novak has been on the top of the game for the last you know, five, six years. Clearly he's had you know, uh, better results the last decade compared to Nadal and of course Federer was uh, you know, number three in terms of big titles. So where does this uh, winning Australia eight times rank? I mean, these are freakish numbers. He becomes the third member of the big three you know, gang that has won a major more than eight or more times and looks like, uh, you know, he will be adding, you know, if I was a betting man, it's safe to say he will be adding to his tally in Australia. How do you see this achievement? I, I, I would, I don't know quite how to rank it. Um, you're not asking me that specifically. It certainly is titanic. I mean, you know, it used to be said that, you know, Yvonne Lendl was in the final of the U.S. Open eight times in a row, and, but he didn't win eight times in a row. Um, and we thought that was a pretty stunning achievement. And here Djokovic has won it eight times in a row. Um, I just recently commented to somebody today when they said something about, you know, this was Nadal before we knew Nadal was going to win 12 French opens. And I said, you know, I I don't know if there's a club player in the world who's won their club championship 12 times. I'm not even sure that your use of the word freakish is appropriate in the sense that it's, it's not hyperbolic enough um it it it's unheard of and i don't it's so to answer your question most directly i think it's a stunning achievement um it would have been different if it had been the australian of the 70s when not everybody made the trip um but the quality of the field is high um the conditions are not super unique 
the way they have been at some tournaments. You know, the old German Open in Hamburg was always cold and wet outdoors on clay. That was a very unusual situation as one, for instance, it's not the old style American grass courts that were so bad, that were so lumpy and uh, it, it, it took a certain kind of player to be able to succeed on them. Um, so it, it, it's just a stunning achievement. Um, I, I don't know where to rank it in all the achievements in the tennis world. I think that's that's beer and barstool conversation, which is enjoyable, but without a firm answer. Um, it might be interesting to look at it from the perspective that we apply to Nadal's game when we consider the French. I mean, we look at the French and we say, oh, no, here's a player who was made for these conditions. Um, and then we we say, well, what are, what are, what are the conditions and what, what are the players' strengths that do that? You know, is the same thing true with the Australian? Well, the, the surface has certainly changed. So it's not entirely the surface. Is it the weather? Might be the weather. I mean, he's, he, it's, it tends to not be windy. He's not a wind player. Um, it tends to be warm or, or to hot. And he's certainly a physical player. I don't think that he's somebody I've never gotten the sense from the distance that I have that he's somebody who particularly enjoys playing in the heat. He's Agassi loved playing in the heat. Federer loves playing in the heat or used to love playing in the heat. Um, I don't think that that's necessarily the case, but it could be that overall the conditions are very much to his liking. And it could also be that the time of year is a very good one for him. Um, you know, he comes in fresh. He does play a very physical game. Um, and his ability perhaps to come in more physically fit than anybody else. And I, I say, I mean, I say ability that that's a combination of talent and the, 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 the talent to be physically fit and the talent to, to, to work, to be physically fit, because make no mistake about it. The gym time, the training time is also a, a an expression of a certain mental and emotional talent that you can apply yourself to those things. Um, because of the the benefit to your game and not just because you enjoy them themselves. It's one thing to go out and hit tennis balls and enjoy hitting tennis balls, but being in the gym, being on the beach, you know, being in the pool, however, whatever kind of workout you're doing, uh, takes a certain mentality to be able to stay at it to the extent that he has to, to be in the condition he is. So uh, it's a stunning achievement. There's no two ways about it. Hmm. Yeah, he's back at world number one and uh, 17 majors. And like you said, you know, hasn't, put a, a step wrong this year with the ATP Cup. Had some great matches with Medvedev and now with team in Australian Open final. Uh, he clearly remains a man to beat in almost every tournament, maybe with the exception at Roland Garros. So let's right. see how the year shapes up for him. Let's talk about Dominic Team. We... I'm going I'm, I'm to throw one thing here that just occurs to me as we're just talking about it. And again, this is a, this is a I'm just wondering question mark type of query, but does Novak Djokovic not get as much credit for winning the Australian eight times in a row in America, not which is not the whole world, but it is the world's biggest single tennis market? Does he not get credit for what he's done there because it always happens around the end of the NFL season in the Super Bowl? I don't know the answer to that, but it does occur to me. I mean, because you think about it, he, he it's an astounding uh, sporting feat. Uh, I don't know that he gets enough credit for it overall, maybe. 
certainly he's not as well known in America as he is in some other places. Certainly not as, as well known as a dollar Federer, but that's true all around. But I, but it just occurred to me. I wonder if it's partially because if I think about the conditions, you know, what's happening during the French when the dollar wins the French? What else is going on in the sporting world that he has that 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 that, that the French has to share news space with? Uh, there's nothing that comes to mind right away, you know. When when Wimbledon comes around, what's it sharing the news? What what's the, what other sporting news is it competing with for for the fans' attention? Not a lot. <clears throat> Maybe the the Tour de France, but I'm not sure sure there's a big overlap there. Um, and the tour typically ends after Wimbledon's over in any event. Um, and then the U.S. Open comes around, and what's competing with the U.S. Open the end of August and the beginning of September? Well, football's starting. In America, that means something. American football starting, that means something. Other than that, I'm not really so sure. You know, I, I wonder if part of his, uh, the lack of credit that he's gotten, and it's not a huge lack of credit, but, you know, if I wonder if he would get more credit, let's put it that way. If he would get more credit for winning eight Australians, if the Australian didn't happen all the time at the same time as American football was winding up its season and leading up to the Super Bowl. So I'll just leave that out there as a head-scratching, more beer and bar stool conversation. Yeah, I mean, that's one way of looking at it. But Novak Djokovic has made his name even at the lawns of Wimbledon and U.S. Open. So uh, there's no shortage of, uh, oh, of course. his resume uh, getting getting the accolades that it deserves. So let's talk about the man who lost to Djokovic in the final. And uh, I want to give myself a little pat on the back when we did the preview show. Uh, I picked uh, Djokovic over team as the, as the championship result. And, uh, you know, it, that's exactly how it played out. You know what uh, the you know you know what the trick is now, don't you, Saka? <laughs> never make another prediction, and you end on the high note. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. And uh, and Murd asked me that, and uh, you know he was going with uh, Nadal and you know Medvedev as the two heavyweights on the side, and I said, you know what? Uh, I think uh, with the the slowness of the code that was talked about, I think uh, if team is healthy and hasn't spent too much energy. I think he's the man who takes Nadal down, but then again, I also said Nadal's going to make me look silly, but, you know, that match lived up to the hype. So, I, I just want to ask you, following Dominic Team's not only progress these two weeks, but last year, did it give you or inspire you the confidence that he's going to mix up with the with the big big players outside of clay? Uh, he won Indian Wells, he beat both Djokovic and Federer at the World Tour Finals, had glimpses of the US Open in 2018. So, how much of a surprise factor was he for you if he was in this tournament to how far he got? Uh, um, well, for the first time ever, I filled out the entire bracket ahead of the tournament. Never done that before. And my results just proved to me why I, that I was right to never have bothered doing, doing it before. Because over the course of all the matches in 128 draw, there are so many variables that making predictions of that, that are minute, you know, match by match, 164 match. You know, first you start with 64 matches and then you're 32 matches and trying to name the outcomes of all of them. So really, for me, I mean, well done for picking uh, Djokovic over team to come through. But the, the minutia in between the first round and the, and the finals is a hard thing to predict. Um, I had, I think I ended up having Nadal coming through because I, that's what I've expected. And I don't think that was an outrageous thing to believe that Nadal was going to beat team. I, 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 I tend to be prediction, 
uh, not wary, this is the wrong word, but I, I always feel like, you know, what's going to be is going to be. It's kind of hard. Do, do I think that team has the game to do these things? Yes, I think he has the game to do it. I don't think you, you don't get to the final and go five sets with Djokovic and not have the game to win. There's, there's just, you, you, you don't, you just, unless, unless Djokovic wins three sets, love, love, and love, and somehow you scrape by six and six on, you know, seven, six, seven, six on the two sets that you take, which doesn't happen. I mean, you, you don't get there without having the ability to win. The question is, do you have the mentality and does your quiver of weapons give you enough to get over the line for the W often enough that one says that you've arrived and, and you're at this given level. I think, um, I don't know if team's going to get there. I, I, I think it's a horror. It's, it's just the, the wall that is presented by Djokovic, Federer and Nadal is just so tall to scale. Um, that anybody's scaling it once is so short of being proof that you can't make a statement, I don't believe, based on short-term results. I, I think the Indian Wells result is interesting. Again, as we pointed out before, it's two of three, not three of five. And it's on some of the slowest hard courts that they play on during the course of the year. Um, and I don't think they're the slowest, but they're close to it. So uh, that factors into it again. And I don't think court speed is destiny, but I sure as hell think it's a big factor. Um, I just think that the nature of team's game is such that he has to really play he there just aren't a lot of cheap points in in his game and i don't know if he's going to get through nadal or djokovic by being better than nadal or djokovic at fundamentally the same game i don't think he's going to, i don't know if he's going to get through them on a regular basis <clears throat> by playing a better version of fundamentally the being the same game without having a weapon that is is just able to bludgeon either of them uh, with any reasonable regularity, and that's we're talking mostly about a serve. But I mean, so so here's here's the other way to look at it, or another way to look at it. Who else has had reasonable success against Federer, Djokovic, and Nadal? And I, I think you have to name Vavrinka, right? I mean, is the only other player who's won three big four titles in this era. Um, except for Murray, I take that back, right? Murray won U.S. Open, two Wimbledons. So he's one of two. And how does Vavrinka do it? He just knocks the flipping cover off the ball against these guys. And not unlike the discussion about Ostapenko, it's not, a, I mean, he's better than Ostapenko on a day-in, day-out basis. His, his record speaks for that. But the ability to do that all the time is, again, the holy grail. And do I see teams doing the same thing? Uh, not really. I, he certainly doesn't have the same kind of uh, sledgehammer serve that Wawrinka does. Um, I don't think it has the same weight 
all in all, um, for the other players. Uh, it may have the speed. I don't know if it has the weight, but Rink is just, you know, the 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 incredible Hulk on the court when it comes to the, the amount of strength that he applies in his style of play. Um, so will team come through? I hope so. Again, it's a little bit like talking about Kennan, you know. I think the, the more variety, the more players we have in the hunt for any title, um, I, I think the better. I think we, we, we as, as spectators... Um, in terms of selling the sport, I think that we we suffer when there <clears throat> there's too much homogeneity in the styles that are being played. I mean, I I love Andy Murray, but I can't tell you that a Murray Djokovic match was ever the, the 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 possibility of waking up to go watch a match or staying up late to watch one of their matches was one that ever got me licking my chops. I watched them. I hope Murray gets back to that point, but the nature of their play is so similar that it's not the best display of tennis's greatness as a sport. So, you know, again, the team, I think, plays very much the same game as Nadal and <clears throat> Djokovic, whether he's going to break through there or not, not, it remains to be seen. It's certainly possible, but they are very tall walls to scale. Interesting. And again, uh, I'm, I'm uh, sorry. I'm sorry. To not, I'm sorry if I'm not giving you a more definitive answer. No, the, the, I mean you, you've given you know you've created some doubt, and which is which is fine because I, I firmly believe, and again, uh, uh, firmly believe is not something that you know want to ad- advocate on the podcast. But I think Dominic Team is in the very select group of players, and he was a set away from, of course, and he didn't even come close in these sets. He was outplayed, uh, but I think he's he, he definitely has the tools to to do it. But uh, you do make some great points that. Uh, you need to have like the one offensive shot that can bail you out when the going is tough or put enough doubt in the server's uh, game because if someone's going for six deuces and then you hold at 15, you made those points and those are all excellent points and those can stand the test of time if uh, uh, if team continues to fall short. Wimbledon is not a place where he's going to be expected to win. Uh, so I think it's Roland Garros and US Open where we can see if he can contend with these guys. Uh, but let me add a few other names. So let's do a mini report card. Let's do some, you know, maybe uh, a rapid fire here. So how would you grade the following men in this fortnight? I know we discussed pre-game that uh, pre pre-show that you know we can't spend too much time on Zverev because you didn't see some of the matches. But uh, how would you rate uh, Medvedev, Zverev, and Hachinov? Uh, what their Australian Open, uh, you know, basically give them grades for for the tournament. Well, I, I think I would certainly between between their scores and and how they seemed to themselves come away from it. I, I cer- certainly think you need to give them all, you know, B pluses. Um, I don't think from reading their comments post match, uh, their last matches, none of them walked away uh, really ticked off at how they played. They <clears throat> they all expressed. Uh, you know, uh, heartfelt disappointment at having lost. I think maybe Medvedev a little bit less than uh, Zverev and Hachinov. Um And that's not to say that I think that Medvedev is devil may care about it or cavalier. I just think that he's played a lot and he felt that he, <clears throat> I think he said very, very frankly that he was very pleased with his performance and felt that he'd done well. And, you know, nobody wins all the time. He didn't say it that way, but that was very much the gist of what he put across. Um, clearly, Zverev has, for the time being, put his serving yips behind him, and that's 
just a tremendous thing. I wish I knew how he did it so quickly. If he could bottle it and sell it, he'd never have to play another tennis match again, and he could be a billionaire. Um, because it's one of the more common problems on tennis courts around the world. Hatchinoff, same thing. Played a great match. Tough tournament. Didn't give up. Competed well. I would say, you know, be plush for all of them. It's a difficult thing to keep in mind, or not difficult, wrong word, but it's an important thing to keep in mind that 128 players start out and only one person finishes the tournament having not having lost. So if you're a tennis, if you're a professional tennis player, if you don't have a way of understanding your losses in a context that lets you be pissed off about losing, even if you played well, and yet not suffering a crisis of confidence, then you're not, you're not going to succeed. So they all have a successful way of understanding and um, dealing with the fact that they lose. The question then becomes, how do I judge my loss? Did I play well? The other player just played better, male or female. I, I'm going to say guy, but did I play well and the other guy just played better? Was that as well as I could play? Did I bring my strengths to bear when I needed them? Did I bring my strengths to bear when I didn't need them and yet I still expressed them and threw doubt into the mind of my opponent? Did I hang tough when I wasn't playing well or if I wasn't playing well? Did I still scrap and scrape and hit the ball back with the wrong end of the racket if that's what it took in order to get it back? They have to go through all of that and come up with some assessment and find a way to come away with a net positive because with the exception of very few players, most of them lose week in, week out. They all lose eventually. And, you know, we see that with Nadal's post-match conferences when he talks about losing and how he sees it. There are times when it hurts him more than others. You see it with Federer. We see it with Djokovic. <clears throat> and, uh, I'm talking about the ATP here. I'm not sure that the tone of the women's, of the WTA press conferences is quite so uh, there's quite the same equanimity I'm, I, I think there's I think the three top players on the men's tour are especially articulate about their matches but I think that they're they're outliers I don't think most players are that way on, on either tour uh, so I would give those three players B pluses for sure I think they came away with a good attitude about having about how they played and they felt that their losses were were they were stung by their losses but they didn't feel that they had failed to perform well or well reasonably well. Okay, so let's bring uh, some of the veterans now. Stan Wawrinka had a, a fairly good uh, Australian Open. Uh, many expected him to even take care of Zverev and you know uh, go and play uh, Dominic team in the semis but uh, 
he did uh, beat uh, Daniel Medvedev, got the better of uh, the result or his fate at the U.S. Open. So that was a revenge match. Uh, you think he can be a factor the way he's making steady progress? He's he's 34. Uh, age is a number in tennis these days, but uh, despite the knee troubles he's had, uh, are, are these signs promising for Stan Wawrinka fans, according to you, what you saw in Melbourne? Yeah, I think so. I, I think that there's no way back from injury that's a, a straight line on a graph. There's, there's always going to be two steps forward, one step back, uh, hopefully. Maybe it's three steps forward, one step back, but it's, it's always an up, back, up, back, up, back. And what you're looking for is a net positive over a, a reasonably short time and then increasingly over a longer period of time. And I think that's what he's showing. I mean, that some of the ways, I mean, one of the, um, this is a little bit from memory. I believe it was the right knee that he had operated on. Do you remember if that's correct? I'm, I'm sorry to say I don't recall. Yeah, I think so. It's the right knee. If I, if and, I just right, yeah. Um, let's see if we can check that while we're talking, but, uh, um, sorry, I'm just checking here. Um, you know, one of the things that was commented on about his his hitting, his playing this year, was that he was hitting his backhand really for, maybe for the first time, the way he was before the surgery. And that I think, um, as I'm looking at my article while we're reading, he sorry. I'm pretty sure it was the right knee. Well, and my, so my point being that if I'm right, and I could be wrong, hitting the ball hard off your backhand and having confidence in your right knee if you're right-handed is a big part of it. I think, I think basically the fact that he was playing the way he was playing prior to the injury and without any apparent hesitation or setback in the course of doing it, didn't win a match and hobble off, didn't call for a medical timeout at any point in any great grand way, um, bodes well. You know, he's 34, there's a ticking clock component to it, but I don't think that it's unreasonable to think that he's going to have a, another major run somewhere and still be a force to, to go on. Do I think he's going to win another major title? I think that's a bigger if. Again, it's a 128 draw to start out. There are a lot of stories to be played between the beginning of a major and the end. Do I think he's going to win the French again? I would find that hard. That that would be tougher to believe. But uh, you know, again, there there's just so, there's so many variables when you talk about these things. I think Sock, if you, so uh, here I'm just saying I don't think Vavrinka is going to win the French again. So let's suppose that Vavrinka comes in. I don't know where he's going to be seated for, come come the French, but he's going to be. You have to expect he's going to be seated come the French. So he gets seated and maybe he gets in a draw that's. Not the toughest. It's an okay draw. And then a couple guys, one guy's sick, another guy turns an ankle, somebody else is a significant other, has an argument with them the night before the match, his draw opens up, and boom, he's in the quarterfinals. And now he has to play three tough matches. Maybe. Maybe he matches up in the quarters against somebody that he's got a leading head-to-head -head against, and the guy hates playing Vavrinka because that's the way the draw plays out. Now he's in the semis. I mean, th these are not outrageous scenarios to posit. I met in, in, in Forest Hills in the early 70s. I was watching, and it turns out I was standing next to the father of Bob Falkenberg. Bob Falkenberg won Wimbledon in 1948. And I'm talking to Mr. Falkenberg Sr., who, you know, Bob Falkenberg, who won Wimbledon, would have been Mr. to me at that point, but well senior. And he says, you know, 
when Bob left and they were sailing on boats, which you and I talked about before the podcast, he said to me, you know, Dad, if I have a good draw, I think I have a shot. And it's no different today. So much of it comes down to the draw. Who was it? Mertens, right? Elise Mertens at the Australian who in her press conference said, and let's face it, I have a good draw. She said, I'm just being honest. Those things are, how can I, how can you predict what Vavrinka's draw is going to be at the French? She can't. And much less how it's going to play out. So do I think it's likely he's going to win the French? No. Because I think there are a lot of fixed points there, not the least of which is the physicality of the, and his age. But he could. He's, he has the game. That's the, uh, and I think the game's coming back. Will the chips fall out so he will? I, yeah, it's, it's possible. I don't think it's likely, but it's certainly possible. No, that definitely is a good sign if you also believe, like a few others, that uh, game's coming back because he does add that X factor in the men's draw and healthy and uh, not a name that many top players fancy playing. So let's talk about the other two members of the big three. Uh, Rafa Nadal came in as world number one and uh, had uh, had a easy first few rounds, but then he had the toughest draw with Nick Kyrgios and Dominic team. That's where it ended. Uh, so what do you make of his stay in Australia? He looks like he didn't have an off-season because he went deep in Davis Cup and then uh, he played ATP Cup and then he comes in here, played five matches. So he went without an injury, which is always a relief to Nadal fans and everyone who wishes well for the Spaniard. But uh, what do you make of his start to the season? Um, I, I think it's very strong. I think that he he also leaves Australia thinking that he played well and he got beat. I think that he probably feels that he had... Uh, opportunities with team, but push came to shove on the couple points where there, Nadal felt that he might have been able to grab the, the 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 reins of the match that he was thwarted or came up a little bit short with a ball. You know, the, the there's a fine line between I I missed and. I hit a ball that wasn't assertive enough and they got to take control of the point. And so this point that could have been an inflection in the match went their way instead of mine. I I don't think he leaves uh, feeling that he did not do all that he could to, to win his match. And I think that for these players, that's a, a little bit like this, the coping mechanism that I was alluding to before. If they walk away and they feel they did all they could to win the match and they didn't win, they're not happy losing, but they don't walk away um, it's, it's berating themselves. The question is, did I do all that I could and was I healthy? They, they don't want to have an asterisk even in their own mind. Well, I did all I could, but I was injured. You know, Federer. I mean, Federer is going to walk away and say that he did all that he could, but he knows he was injured. And at some level, there's, a, there's some legitimacy to that's being a reason for having lost. He's not happy about it. He may feel that he could have done, he could have done a better job of protecting himself. I don't know. Or, or Nadal could feel that he could have done a better job of protecting himself in other years. I don't know. But they don't deny the existence of an injury and so when they when they lose because of it they're ticked they're upset but they don't necessarily but they don't walk away thinking oh i was injured and i didn't try hard enough you, you don't get to that level and not try hard even when you're injured hmm. 
So let me get your opinion on uh, Federer. Uh, of course, we all know he had, uh, you know, now it's a known thing, he had a groin issue uh, with his match uh, against Tennis Sandgren, and then there were some doubts that if he even is going to take the court against Novak Djokovic, uh, came to play, lost in straight sets. Djokovic said, yeah, Federer wasn't moving. Uh, so let's come to the point here again, 1,500-plus uh, professional matches and uh, the stat of never, ever pulling, you know, out of a match during, you know, while stepping on court, after stepping on court. How, how much of the streak means to you in terms of, you know, what the streak means and uh, uh, where, where does this rank in Federer's achievements? I mean, this is like an Ironman stat like we were talking about when we prepped for the show. It certainly is an Ironman stat. I think it's it, it, at the very least, it's highly admirable. Um, at the uh, at the most, uh, I, I think it's it's probably a statistic that's not going to get broken, given the longevity of his career, which is to say, how many matches and, and the longevity of his career and the success, because. Let's look at somebody like, um, uh, I don't know, Songa, let's say. So Songa is a little bit younger than Federer, but maybe he's been playing almost as long and maybe he's going to be 38, but he wasn't playing to the finals of as many tournaments. So the career is as long, but he's played fewer matches because he lost earlier in more tournaments aside from Songa's injuries. So it's a combination of Federer's longevity and the fact that he played so many rounds for as many tournaments as he did, it makes it unlikely that this record is going to ever be broken. How important is the record? I think that's another question. I I, I don't think it's a. It's not the same as a. It's not the same as some one loss record or titles number of titles won or number of big four titles won. Um, but I think it's an it's an admirable record. Do I think it adds to his greatness? Uh, I think it adds to his greatness in the, again, the beer and barstool conversation. I don't know that it adds to his greatness if you try and come up with a list of things that make players all-time greats. Uh, It's it's not pertinent enough to the competition itself, to the who won, who lost aspect of the competition. It is an, a, a trait of great admiration. What I will say is that I think that it is a great sign of the idea that I, the idea that any top shelf player has, which is the issue is not how I play. The issue is whether or not I win or lose. I would rather I would rather win and not play my best then play my best and not win against somebody that I believe I should beat. What grade does uh, Nadal and Federer get, I mean, after they're showing in Australia? Of course, you know, Federer had uh, a niggle he played through and had some, you know, five-set matches against Milman. You know, he admitted both matches, you know, he was lucky to come through. How do you look back and grade these two guys? I'm thinking... I'm not. Um, I, 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 I probably think you have to give them both, you know, an A minus. Can, can a play? Here's so theoretical question or philosophical question. Can a player get an A and not win the tournament? I suppose. I guess 
can Dominic team get an A for for being the losing finalist? Maybe the losing finalist gets an A and the winning finalist gets an A plus. If that's the case, then I think Nadal and Federer both get A minuses. They both came through further than uh, uh, Zverev, Khachanov, and Medvedev, who we gave, who I gave B pluses to. So on the same scale, you think they'd have to get an A minus? Zverev made the semis, right? Zverev, oh, Zverev made the semis. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, I think that you have to believe that Federer is disappointed with the. The, the injury, I, I don't even think it's a matter of belief. I mean, just, I suspect that he has a certain philosophical take on it. You know, these things happen. I'm a professional athlete. I'm 38. He's not somebody who denies that. Then uh, you just chalk it off to bad luck and you're ticked about it. Uh, I would doubt that given the all that's known about how diligent and thorough his training regimen is, that it's a matter of being under undercooked when he took the court. The Millman match was certainly physically taxing. He may be unhappy that he wasn't more dis- able to be more decisive in the Millman match and have a shorter match. If that had been the case, he might not have had the groin injury afterwards. So I'm assuming it happened in the subsequent match. It's, I don't think that's – I think it became apparent to the public whether it was apparent to him or not in the Millman match is another question. His having made it through both of those matches, that I think that he's something he's probably I, – I, again, have to believe that he walks away kind of proud of, that he stuck it out. He made sure he didn't do anything to hurt himself that was irretrievable, and he won the matches. There's a, from memory, from my memory, there's a Jimmy Connors, I mentioned this to you also in the warm-up to the podcast. There's a, it was a situation, I think Connors was in the quarters of Wimbledon, and I don't remember who he was playing, and I could have my details wrong, but I don't think so. And he was behind. I don't know if he was down two sets to one or exactly what the score was. And at some point, he was asked after the match, you know, how do you manage to stay in a match when you're that far behind? And his response was, you never know what's going to happen on the next point. The guy could roll his ankle and retire. Is it the Michael Panfosh match, uh, maybe? At 87, yeah, when he was two sets, 4-1 down? It could very well be, yeah. Yeah, I remember. Quarters, yeah. Quor- quarters at Wimbledon? I think so, yeah. That's the match he said, you never know. I think, yeah, we're probably talking about the same match, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah I think so. And I think that that's really what their attitude is. You know, I don't, have to, I, don't have to, I don't have to be at my best to win this match. I don't get more points for winning the match by playing my best. All I have to do is win the last point. Uh, you know, there used to be a theory that was that was talked about when I was a kid learning that, you know, a match play, and the theory of match play was the last ball theory. The, the only point that matters, the only ball that matters is the last ball. Everything else is prelude. And that's that mentality in a nutshell. So for him to be able to do that and and to apply that mentality in in this case, I think is is tremendous. I think it's a f- phenomenal achievement. Unfortunately, you know, it, unfortunately, it didn't happen in the final in the final round. I, he would much rather have done that in the finals. Uh, and he walked out against Djokovic and gave him all that he could give him. And it was three 
I don't know how to express it. It was three entertaining sets, three reasonably competitive sets without being a tussle, a big tussle. He had he had the measure of the match in the beginning of this of the match in the first the first half of the first set, for short as that is. But and he he went out and he competed as best he could, and there's honor in that, and that's part of the. The, the uh, that that's part of the credit that he deserves for this Iron Man, as you call it, the, this Iron Man record of never having retired in a match. He went out, he played the best he could, given how he was injured. <clears throat> he may have taken the court knowing that if if Djokovic is playing well, I'm not going to win this match. I mean, what did he say? He had a one percent. He gave himself three percent chance to win that match. But he goes out and plays the match because you know what? I don't wish any ill on Nole, but the guy could turn over his ankle in the middle of the third game, and all of a sudden I'm through. And I'm going to show up, and I'm going to give it what I've got. I think that's – if sport's going to teach you any lessons, that's not a bad one to learn. Yeah, that's why they say you know, that's why you lace up. So Yeah, I mean it's why it's, – it, well, it, 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 it's, it's not just – yeah, I mean in the competitive sense, yes, but it's also about everything that we do really. Um, you, you got – you know, half of winning is showing up. And, you know, what's the, the phrase is something like that. Uh or half of succeeding, so I, I it's not, it, it's, it's almost in, it, it, it's almost about competing with yourself. Hmm. You know, in order to be the best me, I've got to put my best out all the time, even on the days when I'm not feeling so great. And I thought, I, I, I think it's very admirable. And again, if you're going to learn about sport in any way, especially in individual sport, it's going to be, I'm going to put my best out there, and on it, my, my best is going to vary from day to day. And I don't need my best, you know, winning with my best doesn't give me any more points. Hmm. I just need the W at the end of the, at the end of the battle. So. Okay. So let's uh, conclude this with a couple of questions. One is, uh, I just want to, I know you talked about the coach speed and this is, uh, uh, this was asked during an ESPN broadcast, I think in a night match, which is early on the East Coast, by Cliff Tristrail to Darren Cahill and asked him if he were to, improve the marketability of the sport, what changes would you do if he was a sole administrator? And Kale said, you know, I would quicken the code. So I talked about this to Matt and Mert last week. I believe this was during the Federer-Fuchovic match. So what, and this is again, you know, echoes to what you've been saying. So how would uh, tennis benefit if uh, conditions were somewhat quickened in your view? Would it make for like better viewing? Would it make for overall better matches? Would it improve you know, some of the injuries that the players face. What angles are you coming from when you say, uh, you know, the slowness uh, or, or the quicken coats could, could help? Well, the, the first thing tennis could do if they wanted to really improve um, the, 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 the viability or, or the visibility or the, the popularity of the game would be, made, would be to name Darren Cahill, that commissioner that you're talking about. Not that I think that he would take the job. I certainly would, don't, don't know. And I don't, it's never going to happen. But not because of him, but because of the nature of tennis. But I think the guy's incredibly incisive so i i think it's a great point uh, that that he should make it <clears throat> the as i said earlier with tennis being a fundamentally defensive game anything that makes it easier to get the ball back one more time uh uh applies more to someone whose game is based on defense and if you're learning the game and getting the ball back one more time is the nature of the game. Then the 
the the default mode is only increases towards being defensive, and so you end up with greater homogeneity in the way the game is played because it's the most efficient way of winning a point, strategically or tactically, I should say. It may not be the easiest physically, but to a great degree, being in great shape is more available to more people than being someone who's able to make great contact with the ball time and again, whether you're a flat hitter or you're a spin topspin hitter. So you end up with, I believe, with slower courts and a greater ability with the rackets and strings and grips, et cetera, to get the ball back more often. You end up with more players playing a more similar style. And I'm not the first and I'm not the thousandth person to say that a contrast in styles is what makes for a better match for viewing. Sampras Agassi, Borg McEnroe, Everett Navratilova, you know, the, the list goes on and on. Agassi, Sampras. <coughs> so, when we have all, when the courts all get slowed down, and none of them are as fast as the fastest courts were years ago, and none of them are really particularly close to the fastest courts even of, say, 25 years ago mid 90s when you have that we have a situation where the points become similar the style of play becomes similar we lose contrast and there is a natural disincentive for players who would thrive in a faster court setting because as juniors when they're coming up their style of play is as a disadvantage they're playing on slower courts everybody's teaching them to play longer points but they really want to play more aggressive tennis. They haven't yet formed their games. And I will say that players who are more aggressive tend to mature later as players than players who are not, who are maybe a little bit more defensive. They don't see a future for themselves in tennis, and we probably lose some. You have to believe that we lose some of them, that they don't stick with the game because it doesn't lend itself to it. I mean, when we see somebody... there are plenty of people who bemoan the state of the game and say, where are the McEnroe's? To those people, I usually say, how many McEnroe's are there? You're naming a guy who played the game 45 years ago. So it's not as if you're telling me where the people from 25 years ago who were like this. They're, you're giving me one example from 45 years ago. By definition, they're the exception, not the rule. But we would have more players who found other ways to win a point other than power and attrition from the baseline if we had faster courts that rewarded the ability to use the geometry and the speed of the court to make it more difficult for their opponents to get the ball back. And I I think a very good example of this is uh, uh, Zverev, Misha Zverev's run to the quarterfinals of the Australian... I want to say it was four years ago. Yeah, 2017. Right? Um, and three years ago. And here's a player who doesn't really have great strokes. And in the pantheon, he's not somebody that you would put in the pantheon of all-time great volleyers. He's a good volleyer. But he's a persistent volleyer. And that's not something that they're accustomed to, other players are accustomed to seeing. And... One of the things that a faster court 
allows to happen is that it takes somebody strokes like Misha Zverev and it makes them more deadly because so he beat my recollection is in the fourth round he beat Murray yeah he did he beat Murray then lost to Federer right and so what happens? You, you here, look at, let's look at the ground strokes of Misha Zverev and Andy Murray. Clearly, there's no comparison when you talk quality. But you put Misha Zverev on a faster court, and all of a sudden he hits his his forehand cross court to uh, Murray's backhand, or he hits a slice backhand, or he even tops a backhand to Murray's forehand, and the ball doesn't really sit up for Murray to clock it. It kind of skids through. So all of a sudden, Misha Zverev's ground strokes have become more potent. I mean, we think about faster courts as only being good for a servant volleyer or a big server, but they really serve to diminish the value of ground strokes that are powerful for someone who can set up on them. Because now, all of a sudden, somebody that takes a shorter backswing and doesn't have the same power can still hit the ball through the court in a way that they can't when the court is slower. And we would have greater contrast. And we would be able to appeal to a greater variety of players as young players. We would develop those players. And uh, Skip, I know you're onto something here. We've discussed this even in the, pre, uh, in the prep. So which tour is this impacting more? Like uh, we've already seen some younger players in the women's side uh, break through and win majors. And it's not happened on the men's side. Anyone born after 1990 uh, is having a hard time winning sets in the finals. Of course, Medvedev and team can do, uh, just did in the last two finals. So in your view, which tour, uh, the slowness of the courts is impacting more for new players to break through? I haven't really thought about it in terms of the, the, the courts versus the, who's, who's being able to break through. I, I do think, as I mentioned to you, you know, in, the, in our pre-taping conversations, I think that the women's game has been affected more by the speed that, at which they can hit the ball with the rackets and the strings and uh, and technique today. I don't think that the, the, the women, by virtue of size and, and general speed of foot from point A to point B, overall on the average, not as great as the men, the women have, are now able to hit the ball more often, so much faster than they're able to cover court behind it compared to the men. And so it's increased the premium for going big on the women's side, somewhat to their detriment because there are times, I believe, when they're going big because they want the payoff, but the shot itself is is difficult to hit. If they hit it, it's a winner, but if they miss, they miss. Um, I mean, you have to, you look at some balls and you, and women don't get to a ball and the men get to the same ball and it's the women just aren't covering the court as fast. They can't overall. And so the women's game has been affected more by that, that, con, that, all those things that, that were put together. It, it has occurred to me <clears throat> that of the major sports, really tennis, the differences between the, 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 the regulation between the women's and men's game are smaller, which is to say non-existent in the women's game, in the men's game. But in basketball, they play with a slightly different size basketball, nets at a different height, Golf, they tee off at a different tee. Uh, basketball, the rules are slightly different. Uh, um, it, baseball in America, there's no, uh, there's no major hardball uh, league among women that I know of. And, of course, softball is a very different game. 
And in tennis, they're playing on the, they're playing with the same size rackets, the same balls. Well, they play with a different ball. The women's tour uses a different ball, but they're playing on the same courts. Court geometry is the same, and there's there's no adjustment made for the physiological differences on average between the men and the women. And tennis is really the only major sport that does that. And so it's not surprising that at a certain point, the styles of the two tours are very different because they they're contending with the same geometry. They're contending with the same ball and racket situation, but they have different answers to those, the questions that are posed by those things. I, I think we covered quite a few uh, topics here and a lot of ground and a lot of detail. I'm sure anyone who tunes in uh, will have, uh, you know, fun listening to this. Uh, so let me wrap this up. Uh, you know, I fielded a lot of questions from the staff, especially Matt, Mert, and Andrew helped me. So this is another uh, Andrew Burton question, uh, uh, which we thought, you know, would be a fitting uh, one for this uh, podcast. So, yeah, there's always a, a talk of best of five being the big difference for the newer generation. Why, how, you know, they haven't uh, been able to break through and, you know, some of these guys, I feel like a break, broken record, have come close. So in your view, uh, are we beginning to see signs of, uh, uh, you know, the revival in ATP for the for the younger generation? Because we've, we have a lost generation, according to Andrew Burton, with the, the Nishikori's, Raonic's and Dimitrov. You think time is lost on them? And part B of the question is, uh, with the new brigade of the Medvedev, Zverev, and Tsitsipas and team, I will put him close to this group. You think, uh, are we seeing signs of not exactly changing of the guard, but are, is this promising what we've seen in the last two majors at US Absolute, Open and Australia? Absolutely. 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 Do I think it's because the new generation is significantly better than Dimitrov, Raonic, and Nishikori to pick three? <clears throat> that might be a little tougher to say. Um, we tend to think of the big three as a, a, a immutable monolith, but in fact, if the new generation is five years younger than Dimitrov, Raonic, and Nishikori, right? Well, the big three are five years older. Would 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 a, would if Raonic were to appear on the tour today? at the peak that he was when he made the finals of the, of the Australian, would he have greater success events against the big three today? More like the Zverevs and the uh, teams, a little bit mid-generation. And the Tsitsipas group? Uh, maybe. Zverev? Maybe. You know, it, he, he realized that Nishikori, Dimitrov, and Nishikori... Nishikori, Raonic, rather, and Dimitrov were playing Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic when Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic were all five years younger. If we, when, when Raonic, Nishikori, and Dimitrov were 21 or 22 or even 23. So it's a little difficult to say that this generation is better than that generation. It may be that they're coming along at a better time to poke holes in the, to, 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 to mount some kind of an, uh, an assault on the, the Mount Everest that is Nadal, Federer, and Djokovic. But they clearly are something of a wave of the future, and I, and I think it's great. I, they probably they may have a little bit less respect. That's possible. But I and – I, and, and I will also say that I think that as a group, they tend to be with the ex Nishikori and Raonic were fairly one-dimensional players. 
Nishikori, especially Raonic, a little bit less so. Dimitrov, Dimitrov was such an all-around player that he doesn't even know. I mean, the ball comes over and he's not sure what shot to hit. Not unlike Federer, except that Federer managed to control that, as he just called them, demons. You know, he he managed to find a way to uh, organize his uh, almost uh, ADHD comprehension of when the ball came over, how many different things he was going to pay attention to. He managed to organize that. Dimitrov never did, or it hasn't, Not certainly not for any length of time. But I think if we look at certainly Tsitsipas, um, Shapovalov, team beginning to, I mean, there are more, there are more signs of more all around play on both tours in the past two years, year and a half. Again, Coco Goff's father mentioning that, you know, you have to learn to come forwards if you're going to have a career. You have to learn how to turn a point. You can't play every point for 37 balls. Muguruza coming forwards more often. You're seeing Barty now uh, clearly doing it. Nobody's thumping the ball over the net and charging like Vitas Gerolaitis, which worked at the time for a variety of reasons, but it doesn't work today. But they're coming forwards more often. And so, yes, I am enheartened by I, I, I am encouraged to see it. I'm encouraged to see that more success against these players, regardless of what the reason is. And I'm encouraged just by seeing more all-court play. I think that's all to the good. I think it portends well for the fans. And, and I think it portends well for club tennis, too. I think the, the more we have players who learn to play a variety of games, the more fun there's going to be. And the more players are going to be willing to play because they're going to see that there's more than one way to, to, uh, to win a point. I skip on that note. I think... Uh... Let's uh, let's call it a show. It was really fun and uh, I mean great listening for me. And I hope uh, everybody who tunes in uh, feels the same way. And if you tune in to listen to this podcast, feel free to drop any review or any feedback of what Skip said, what I asked, and let's keep the conversation going. The season has just started. It was a great Australian Open. Uh, once again, on behalf of Matt and Sakib, I want to thank Skip and everyone who tunes in for these podcasts. It's my pleasure. Thank you for asking me. And as you said, anyone that has any questions, they can uh, write to you on Twitter, same as me, TennisSkip1515, uh, and be happy to have a conversation with them about it. And thank you very much for inviting me. I enjoyed it. Yeah, and we'll be back in a week's time with another episode. Bye for now. All to, all to the good. You take care, Saka.